You looking for somebody who wants coffee? Oh, looking for cuts. In all the wrong places. <laughs> yeah, they, I think it was Cuccinelli that uh, he started, started pushing issues related to Obamacare, and that really changed the dynamic for, uh, for Virginia. So that's the interesting one. I'm kind of, uh, yeah, so it'll be interesting to see what, what happens. I, I'm not all that <clears throat> worked up about anything locally, but, but that's an interest, interesting race in an hour. They, they've been, polls been closed there an hour and a half, so that, uh, that might be a very interesting situation. Okay, uh, a couple of reminders in terms of announcements. Uh, on the 16th, we have our men's prayer breakfast. And then um, uh, on the 17th is the deadline for the uh, Samaritan's Purse. And then we have um, Thanksgiving meal on the 24th. And a reminder that there's no Bible class on Thursday, the 28th. And there will be no Bible class on Tuesday, December the 3rd because we'll be at the pre-trib rapture study group meeting. So that's just things to keep in mind. How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart, that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer, and then I will open in prayer. This gives you the opportunity to make sure you're in fellowship and ready to uh, go forward in your spiritual life and focus on the teaching of the word this evening. So let's bow our heads together in prayer. Father, we're thankful that we can come together this evening. We're thankful today as an election day. We pray that that um, we'll see some positive results today from people who have awakened to truth and who have voted likewise. We pray that you will continue to guide and direct, protect this nation in terms of freedom, freedom to uh, study your word, to freely proclaim it, uh, freedom to live our lives as we would live them and not under the tyranny of government and freedom to uh, support Israel. Father, we continue to pray for uh, wisdom in decision-making in relation to the uh, moves of, of Iran to build uh, nuclear weapons. We continue to pray for wisdom uh, in the White House, that there would be those who see the truth and understand it, whose advice would be taken. And we pray that you would continue to foil the whatever desires there are uh, anywhere in, within government to limit, to restrict freedom, that you would expose these things for what they are. Father, we pray that you would challenge us today with your word, that we might be reminded of our purpose and meaning as Christians and our role and destiny in our spiritual life. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. One thing about Christianity, contrary to some of the popular presentations we've got today, is that God doesn't guarantee that we're going to have a life of ease, a life of comfort, a life without adversity, a life without challenge, and even a life without persecution. 
I think that in the 200 years of this nation's history, because of our emphasis and uh, because of our freedom and a lack of per- persecution, that that Christians have become a very lax in terms of understanding uh, the fact that in most of history, most of the world, Christians have been in very hostile environments. And I think that if trends continue to accelerate the way they have over the past 20 or 30 years, there are some of us here that may indeed see some some real persecution. We already see indications of that in different things that are going around today. Most of us are aware of legislation related to hate speech, the uh, hostility that is represented, uh, the hostility comes against Christians because of our uh, belief that homosexuality is sin, that homosexual marriage is sin, that uh, because of various other positions that we take. And so we are often viewed as the enemy. And as we become more and more of a minority in uh, the United States of America, this gives freedom to those who oppose us to be more and more vocal. I have talked to a variety of legislators and other uh, others in, within politics who are committed, consistent Christians and who have promoted legislation that is consistent with Christianity, and they tell me just horror stories about the death threats, about the threats to their families, the de- threats, the horrible, wicked things that come to them day in and day out because they take a stand uh, for for the truth. There is, in many sec- areas of this nation, genuine antagonism and hostility to us simply because we are Christians. And, and if that becomes known, then we become the target uh, of these kinds of people. This, the same thing was true in the ancient world. And the Apostle Paul met this again and again. We've gone through passages in 2 Corinthians uh, 12 and other passages going uh, through uh, a listing of all the things the Apostle Paul encountered. But one thing that just gave a foundation to his his whole life is uh, stated, I think, very clearly the principle uh, behind Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And when Paul says that, he tells us that we are to present our bodies. And what he means by that is he's not just talking about the body. He's talking about the whole person. Because where your body goes, you go. Now, I know for some of you, you wake up in the morning, you really wish you could go somewhere without your body. You'd like to leave it behind. You're getting aches and pains, and maybe it doesn't weigh as little as you wish it did for whatever the reason. You kind of wish you could go somewhere without the body, but where your body goes, the rest of you goes. And that's why Paul uses a term like body here is because he's talking about the whole person and that we present our bodies, and this is an ongoing thing. It is, it's not just a one-shot decision. It, it emphasizes a priority using the aorist tense there. Present your bodies a living sacrifice. And again, it brings in that idea of a sacrifice. Now, some people get the wrong-headed notion that sacrifice always means that you feel like you're giving up something. I don't think the Apostle Paul ever felt like he was giving up anything. 
But the idea of a sacrifice is giving something of value to God. That's what a sacrifice means. Sacrifice means it's it, you're giving yourself for his will and not our will, which is exactly where Paul goes in the next in the next verse, uh, that we are to give our lives to serve the Lord. That's a purpose for the Christian life. One of the many purposes, but that's an overarching purpose, is that we're saved to serve God. We're not saved to serve our self-indulgent little whims and desires. We're not saved to live a comfortable life or an affluent life or prosperous life. Uh, I know that's a surprise for probably a lot of people in some churches today because they've been so deceived with the prosperity gospel. But we have been saved to serve God whatever that involves. And whatever it involves, it's going to be a life that is that ultimately is exciting. There may be times when we're a little overwhelmed with what's going on, but you talk to people who are missionaries, who are pastors, who are believers, who are growing to spiritual maturity and really involved in serving the Lord, they realize that their lives are vastly different from what they would have been like if they had taken another path. That when that we are called for a purpose, and that purpose is to serve the Lord, which is our reasonable service, which is what Paul says at the last part of verse one. And then he goes on to add to that that we're not to be conformed or pushed into the mold of the world system, the way of thinking of our neighbors and our friends and most of our families, but we're to be transformed. By the renewing of our mind, and y'all are really evidence of that because on a on a Tuesday night in, in Houston, there's a lot of places people can be, and a lot of people we know are there instead of here, and maybe they're just tired, maybe they've had to work a 12-hour day, maybe whatever the reason, they're, they're not here. They're not focused on the Word. Now, I know there are some people who are listening via the live stream because it's just difficult to get across Houston for whatever reason. But we're to be transformed by the renewing of our mind, overhauling our thinking, and that doesn't happen just by coming to church once a week. Uh, 30, 45 minutes on Sunday morning, an hour on Sunday morning, does not undo all of the influence of the world around us that's hitting us 24-7 except for that one hour or so on Sunday morning. We have to make it a point, a priority, to be completely overhauled in our thinking. And then we have a purpose clause. What's the reason we do this? That we may demonstrate. That's the idea of prove, that we can demonstrate the value of something. It's a positive term, demonstrating the value of something. And what we're demonstrating is the will of God, that the will of God is good and acceptable and perfect. That's what we do when we're living to serve the Lord. Now, the reason I went here is because this is a backdrop to understanding some of the things that are about to happen for the Apostle Paul, and he relates to the, relates us, <clears throat> relates that in our passage in Acts. So now let's turn back to our passage in Acts, in Acts chapter 20. And in Acts chapter 20, uh, <clears throat> Paul emphasizes this because he he sees where the he's heard all these warnings from the Holy Spirit, and he knows that his intended plan to go to Jerusalem is one that is going to uh, put him right in the in the bullseye of opposition, of hostility, uh, of hatred from a mass crowd. 
that would like nothing more than to kill him because they hate what he has come to stand for. Now, we are towards the end of his third missionary journey where he has stopped at Miletus and giving some parting instruction to the, the, um, to the elders, uh, which I pointed out last time. That's just another way of talking about the pastors, the spiritual leaders of the church in Ephesus. And as a, before we get into this passage, he had, had uh, revealed to them that he is going, in verse 22, he says, Now I go bound by the Spirit. In other words, God the Holy Spirit has bound him and locked him in to a course and a destiny. He says, I go bound by the Spirit to Jerusalem, not knowing the things that will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies in every city, saying that chains and tribulations await me. He is headed for uh, serious opposition and persecution. It's not pleasant. It is not pleasant when the people you care about, as we've seen in our study in Romans 9, 10, and 11, when the people you care about reject you, when the people that you wish to accept your message consider you to be the spawn of Satan, and when the people you wish to uh, express the love of God to uh, would rather see you dead in the streets and would rather uh, have you undergo whatever pain and punishment they can think of rather than accept the truth of what you're saying. And that's what Paul is headed into. Why would we choose a path like that? Why would any of us choose to go in that direction when we can easily take a path of less resistance? And the reason is what is stated in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that God has called each of us to serve him no matter what the cost may be, no matter what the opposition may be, no matter what resentment may come up, no matter what resistance or rejection we may encounter, no matter how. But it's how we engage that. We don't want to engage it from our sin nature. We have to engage that opposition from the strength of our relationship with God the Holy Spirit and application of God's Word. So let's just pick up a little bit before where we left off last time. Acts 20, 25 to 27. Paul says, And indeed, now I know that you all, among whom I've gone preaching the kingdom of God, again we see this emphasis on the proclamation of the kingdom. What is he teaching about the kingdom? He is proclaiming the fact that the king has come, the king was rejected, and the kingdom was postponed, and something new has entered into this uh, interim period between the uh, ascension of Christ and his future coming. But it's a proclamation. It's not as I pointed out from the quote I used on Sunday morning and last week, it's not a message that's based on a certain rhetorical style, using very pleasing words. He's not telling uh, uh, amusing little stories. He's not giving people uh, an emotional feel-good message. It's not a, a motivational message. He is proclaiming and announcing that some event is taking place. And then he is explaining the significance of that. So these two things go together, that preaching is not what uh, what most people think preaching is. Preaching is a proclamation of an event. 
And then teaching is the explanation of that event and the explanation of what the Word of God says about life. So the focal point, as I pointed out last time, looking at several of these words, some of which I have underlined here, <clears throat> describe the, the nature of the pulpit ministry. The pulpit ministry is not designed to make everybody feel good. Now, sometimes we do because we're reminded of God's Word. We're reminded of God's grace. You're going through some difficult things in your life, whatever that may be, whatever the area of adversity may be. And I hope that when you come to Bible class, you're reminded that God is faithful and God is going to sustain you just as he has all of these saints of God that we have studied in the Word, and that just as God used them, just as they faced all kinds of difficult circumstances in their life and they were uh, strengthened by God the Holy Spirit and by the Word of God, the same is true for you and I. And we see these different words that are used, preaching, announcing, uh, proclaiming an event. Verse 26, Paul says, Therefore I testify to you, that is, he is functioning as a, as a legal witness in a courtroom related to the truth of something. He says, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men. Now, last week, Bruce asked a great question about that. And uh, people say, well, how can he say that when he was a murderer before he was saved? Well, number one, he was completely forgiven of all sins at the point of salvation. And number two, he explains what he means by it in the next verse. The next verse begins with that little word for, which usually introduces either a an explanation or in some cases a causal statement. And, and uh, so sometimes those are very close together in terms of their meaning. But he says, I can testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all men because I have not shunned to declare to you the whole counsel of God. I have not pulled back from declaring the whole counsel of God because he is completely uh, honest about the truth of God's word and proclaiming the gospel to one and all. It's not his fault if they reject it, end up going to the lake of fire and eternal judgment. He has done uh, his role, performed his role. He has declared the whole counsel of God, as we saw last time, that this is the role of the pastor to teach everything from Genesis 1-1 to the last word in Revelation 21, that we are to teach everything that's in the word of God, every, every verse, every um, concept, uh, over and over again. Now, some things have are, are uh, pertain more to the church and the church age, but we're to know the whole will of God, which comes from all 66 books of the Bible, not just focusing on on some. And then he comes to the main point that he's driving home as a warning to the uh, leaders, the pastors from Ephesus. And he says to them, uh, therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And I pointed out last time that these words here, the noun for overseers is episkopos, that is sometimes translated a bishop. It had to do in, this, in a secular environment with an, a manager or one who had oversight uh, over some over servants or over workers. And then the word to shepherd is a verb which emphasizes the function. The word, the noun shepherd, is only used 
uh, once in Scripture to describe the spiritual gift of the spiritual leader of the church. Uh, we come from a Baptist heritage, as I pointed out, and, and not just Baptist, many others refer to the leader of the church as the pastor, but that term has been uh, made the key term, the key title for the leader of the church, whereas the more popular titles used in the scripture are either uh, bishop or uh, overseer or elder. Elder, as I pointed out last time, these three words are used to describe different aspects of the leadership of the church. In terms of the leadership oversight of the pastor, he's referred to as an episkopos. In terms of his spiritual maturity, he's described as an elder. And in terms of his function, which is to feed the sheep, to equip them to do the work of the ministry, he's called a shepherd. So these are the three terms that are used, and two of them are used here in Acts 20.28. So he warns them. Uh, The Greek word here is a present active imperative. Present imperatives are designed to communicate something that is to be done on a regular basis. It's a standard operating procedure, something we are to regularly and consistently do. So they are to always be on guard. They are to be watchful. They are to protect the sheep. How do they protect the sheep? They protect the sheep by teaching the truth. This is how a pastor is to function. He not only teaches the truth as it comes from the Word of God, but he has to teach the truth as it is uh, related to the error of the day. Because sheep, and pardon me, but y'all are sheep, and I'm a sheep too, but sheep are not real bright. I'm not saying y'all aren't real bright, but God called y'all sheep. That wasn't my choice of a metaphor. And that's because, in my experience as as a pastor in over 30 years, is that I can paint a picture in the pulpit and people don't see it. It's amazing. We, 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 most people don't really think critically about a lot of things. And so, uh, sometimes you have to really get into the specifics of views, which I have done in the past, because people need to understand the truth in, as it is contrasted to error. And the only way sometimes that you can tell the difference between different shades of white, white is not, if it's not pure white, then it's got air, it's got darkness in it, it's got black in it. If it's not pure white, then the only way you can see those shades of white, off-white, eggshell white, whatever it may be, is to contrast it to pure white. And so when, when we get into areas where things look very, very much like truth, they're not truth, and you, the pastor has to expose them. Unfortunately, some people don't like that because that's also called apologetics. Apologetics is the realm of teaching that is designed to expose error by giving a defense of the truth of Christianity, and that's something that we're told in First Peter 3.15 to do. So that's how it functions, and it's part of this command to take heed, to guard against, to beware of certain things. And the pastor does it not just by teaching the truth, but by teaching it in contrast to the various shades of error that are out there. For years, it was a common illustration 
uh, in a lot of uh, cult books and a lot and in some uh, books on the evidence of Christianity, things like that, that you would hear people use an illustration related to counterfeit money. And this illustration went along the lines of uh, of the way the FBI agents and Treasury agents are are trained to spot counterfeits and that they are trained by spending a tremendous amount of time handling the genuine article, knowing all of the characteristics of the genuine article, so that when you are so familiar with the, the, the genuine article, the true uh, American currency, that anything that's different will automatically stand out. And I always thought that was a great illustration. I heard that from many different people, read it in many different sources when I was uh, uh, growing up as a, as a Christian. And then one day I asked an FBI agent if that were true, and he said, no, not at all. They have to know all the different nuances of counterfeiting because when it gets, when counterfeiters are very good, it's very difficult to spot those differences. You have to know what you're looking for and know what those issues are and know how counterfeiters are attempting to uh, counterfeit the truth. And that same thing is true in the pulpit. And uh, and so that's what Paul is getting at here. The ro- one role of the pastor is to watch the congregation and to protect them. And he does that through the truth. Now, Paul says here they're to take heed to yourselves and to all the flock. And one of the reasons he says that about taking heed to themselves is because in the next verse he's going to tell them that after his departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And that indicates that they come in from outside, but don't push the metaphor too far because they're wolves and of a different species than lambs. He's not making a point that they're not believers as opposed to the the sheep that are believers. He's making a point in terms of their behavior, not in terms of their, their nature. He's not talking about whether they're saved or unsaved. And in verse 30, he says, also from among yourselves, from these very pastors that Paul has trained, that Paul has taught, there are those who are going to rise up and speak perverse things to draw away the disciples after themselves. And it's very discouraging when you're a pastor to have spent an enormous amount of time training uh, young men training other pastors, and then to watch them go off into uh, doctrinal and theological error. But if you're, tr- if you're going to train anybody to do something, there's always going to be some that, that go off in their own way and go into error. And that's true, I think, in probably any profession. But it doesn't negate the fact that a responsibility of the pastor is to train men for the next generation of pulpit ministry. So he warns them, take heed to yourselves, watch your own doctrine, watch your own teaching, and to all the flock, not just pastors. It's not just a a problem in the professional ministry of the Word of God, but it can impact any member of the congregation. Then he says, among which, that is among the flock, the Holy Spirit has made you Overseers. It's the Holy Spirit that has elevated them to the position of being a pastor. And here the word overseer is the word episkopos uh, for bishop. 
And he's made them that. The Holy Spirit is the one who distributes the gift of pastor-teacher. At the moment of salvation, at the moment of salvation, God the Holy Spirit gives everyone at least one spiritual gift. And there are many who have the spiritual gift of pastor-teacher. And one of the sad things that I see is a number of men who got sidetracked in their 20s, probably in their teens and their 20s and 30s. They thought they were squared away studying the Word of God. And all of a sudden they wake up when they're in their 30s or 40s or their 50s and realize they had the gift of pastor-teacher. And it's too late. It's too late. And and uh, I'm amazed at how many men I see in their 40s, 50s, and even 60s all of a sudden deciding they want, want to start taking some seminary courses because they think they had the gift of pastor-teacher. Now, I'm not going to judge whether or not they do. They probably did, and rather than pursuing it and presenting themselves as a living sacrifice, Romans 12.1, they decided to pursue family. They decided to pursue another career. They de- decided to, uh, to pursue something safe and comfortable and secure, and in some cases they did it because that's what their parents pushed them to do. I remember when I was, uh, about the time I was in seminary, I was working with a number of high school kids and some college kids, and two or three of them thought they had the gift of pastor-teacher. They wanted to go to Bible college. They wanted to go to seminary, but their parents refused to finance it. They wanted them to go into something safe, go get a degree in engineering, go get a degree in accounting, uh, have some sort of skill to fall back on. But the last thing you want to do is go into the ministry. Now, I'm not saying it's not wise to have some sort of career to fall back on, uh, if you go into the ministry, I think you should. I think that's a good thing. But when when young men have a desire to serve the Lord and parents come along and quash that, that is evil. That shows that their priorities are totally screwed up and they're not focused on the mission of the body of Christ. They're, focus, they're putting security and comfort over uh, over the ministry of the Word of God. And I know a lot of men who have um, had different careers and they've had different skills and different backgrounds, and they bring that to bear on, uh, on the Word of God. But I know a lot who have just been distracted uh, from an early dedication to the Word because of some uh, wrong-headed influence that forced them into a safe, secure uh, path of life rather than giving their life to the Lord. And one of the problems we have today is an absolute dearth of young men in the next two generations after me to fill the pulpit. Churches come across all the time, doctrinal churches who've had seasoned pastors for years, and they can't find anybody to replace them. And this is one of the problems we've had with with Chafer Seminary, and I know Tyndale Seminary has this problem as well, is that it's difficult to find young men who are willing to go through what it takes to become a pastor. When I was a young man, we had a bulletin in the church where the page was about three-quarters filled with young men who were going to seminary. 
And I have had the privilege to know a lot of those men over the years. They were about a half a generation ahead of me. And they spent many years in, in, in pastoral ministry. Many of them went into the mission field. Uh, some of them did not end up going into the pastoral ministry, but they did other things. But they were involved with uh, always with some sort of uh, Christian ministry. And they did a tremendous job. But we look now at the next couple of generations, and and those men in that generation and in my generation understood that if you were going to, you thought you had the gift of pastor teacher, you needed the best training in the world, and you were going to go wherever it took to get that training. And I was so distressed by the late 90s when I would talk to to men who want, thought they had the gift of pastor teacher, and the first thing they would ask is, "Well, can I get that degree online?" What a wimp. You think you, if you don't have the guts, if you don't have the courage, if you don't have the faith in God to trust God to take care of you and your family by moving halfway across the country and going to seminary, you will never, ever have the faith you need to pastor a church. Because that's one of the things you learn in seminary, is you learn to trust God to, to help you pay your bills. And I remember the story of a, a uh, man, I, I was in many classes with him, didn't know him very well, uh, as we went through seminary, and he gave his testimony at our senior breakfast uh, at the end of our four years at seminary, and it turned out that his wife had become, he had been accepted at Dallas the year before he started, and um, he was ready to move to Dallas, and it turned out his wife was pregnant. He said, well, I can't go. See, this is one of those areas where we often choose the safe and secure thinking it's wise. And so he decided not to go to seminary. And then about two months later, unfortunately, his wife had a miscarriage. So they reapplied for the next year. They came to seminary. And two months later, she became pregnant with twins. God, and he said, they never missed a meal. They never missed paying a bill that God always provided. And he said the the ways God provided for them as they went through seminary were just amazing. It taught him to trust in the Lord day by day to handle every situation. But if you don't have the guts as a young man to pack the bags and move across the country to go where you need to go to be a pastor so that you can be the best pastor there is, then you don't have the guts to trust God, and so you might as well just give it up. And and sadly, that's what's happening today. That's why we don't have the next generation. It's also a sad commentary on the general apostasy and spiritual weakness of the next couple of generations. Now, there are a few wonderful examples that are contrary to that, but they're rare, and it's really sad. But I get diverted. Okay, the apost- uh, it's the Holy Spirit who gives the spiritual gift. But it's the individual believer who has to make the decision as to whether or not they're going to pursue it, whether or not they're going to pursue spiritual maturity. And in the course of pursuing spiritual maturity, your your spiritual gift will develop. Uh, often today, and when you listen to some of the classes and courses on spiritual gifts, you're, they, they get it backwards. Go per, develop your spiritual gift, and then you'll become spiritually mature. And that's backwards. Uh, develop your maturity, and as a result of that, your spiritual gift will develop. So the Holy Spirit raises them up to be the leaders in the church, to shepherd, which basically has the idea of feeding and protecting a flock. 
That's that, that whole metaphor of being a shepherd. What does a shepherd do in terms of the flock? He identifies where the best pasture is. He takes them to the best pasture, and he protects them from eating the things that would make them sick. He leads them in relation to feeding them. That's the role of a pastor teacher. He leads the congregation through his teaching of the congregation. And then he says that you're to feed, shepherd, lead the church of God. It's God's church. This church, from the day I came out, I'll tell you a little story about me. When I went out and had my first church down in Lamarck, I was there for a couple of years, and then it imploded. Uh, because there was an older generation there that, uh, in fact, I had several older people would tell me, uh, why, why can't you be like, uh, Robert Schuler? We just love to watch him. He just makes us feel so good. You know, this, this was the motivational crowd. But the younger people that were coming into the church during the time I was there really wanted to know the word. And when that church imploded, it was very difficult to see see that happen and to watch it happen and to see the collateral damage in the lives of a lot of believers. And I went on to other ministries and pastored uh, another church that did not have, like the first one, didn't have any kind of real emphasis on teaching in their in their background. It's very hard if you come from a background like I've come from and like many of you have come from to go into sort of a standard Bible church and try to uh, sort of create an appetite for the for the uh, teaching of the Word of God when they've never really had it. They, they're satisfied with pablum and they've convinced themselves that it's good steak and it's 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 good mature nourishment. And um, when I went to Preston City Bible Church, I made a decision that I wasn't at all going to be concerned about the people that came to church or didn't come to church because. The Word of God needed to be central, and people were either going to come because they wanted to hear the Word of God, or they would not come, in which case I would go find another job. But I wasn't going to worry or be concerned one bit about who showed up and who didn't show up. It was my job to lead and feed the congregation, and it was God's job to bring people who wanted the truth uh, to be there. And what's remarkable is in the first two congregations I pastored, there was always uh, undercurrents. There was always rumblings. There were always people who were dissatisfied and think that things ought to go this way or things ought to go that way. And once I, uh, when I went to Preston City from that point to the present, I haven't had any of that. Uh, because people understand what the issue is. The issue is you're here at this church because you want to grow to spiritual maturity. And if you don't want to grow to spiritual maturity and you just want to kind of hang around the edges, well, that's fine. We're not going to run you off. But know this, that the purpose for this church is to produce mature believers. And that's our goal and that's our biblical directive. And that's what we're all about. And people who don't want to get on that maturity train uh, it's amazing. They don't hang around very long. They go somewhere else. So it's the church of God. This is God's church. He's the one who directs it. Jesus said uh, to Peter that he would build his church. He didn't say, Peter, if you, you build the church and, uh, and, and I'll, uh, I'll worry about other things. Jesus said, I will build the church and you feed the church. We've got to get the priorities right there. The pastor's job is not to build a church. The pastor's job is to feed, lead, and guide the church through the Word of God. And this is a church which is further defined as that which God 
which the Lord purchased, God purchased it with his own blood. The nearest referent to he is God. This is one of those uses of God that looks at God as the triune God and is not defining a specific role of the personhood of God. Uh, it's not looking at the Father, the Son, or the Holy Spirit. It's looking at the triune God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. It is, in that sense, God who died on the cross. It's Jesus, yes, but it, he was, he's fully God, so it is not inaccurate to refer to him as God. Uh, this is one of those passages that does, does so. The church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. And the word there for purchased is an interesting word. We might expect a word related to redeem, which is usually translated with that idea of purchasing or buying something, uh, but it is the word peripoeo, uh, which means to preserve, to keep safe, to keep alive, or to purchase. Those are the ways in which it is translated. So it has to do with the fact that it, it is brought to life, through uh, the death of Christ. Whenever we see that term blood, it's always a metaphor representing the death of, of, of Christ. So it's, uh, we could translate this, the church of, church of God, which he uh, brought to life by means of his own death. Now, we go on from here. He's going to explain this a little more, starting in verse 29 with the uh, first word for, uh, which is giving further explanation. He says, For I know this, that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. So there's going to be uh, men, people who aren't in the congregation yet who are going to come in. It's not used, as I pointed out a minute ago, the use of wolf here does not mean uh, that he's making a difference between believer and unbeliever. But he's talking about what they do. He's talking about their character, that they are seeking to devour and to destroy the, the, the flock of Christ. So these savage wolves come in among you, not sparing the flock. And then he says, also from among you, uh, well, men will rise up who are speaking perverse things. This is a word, diastrepho, which means to twist or distort or to pervert. So they're twisting the truth. They're scripture twisters. They're twisting the truth. They're distorting the truth rather than uh, teaching the truth. And sometimes this is extremely subtle. And their purpose is in, in the infinitive there to draw away disciples after themselves. One of the worst things that I never have understood this, but in the church you get you attract a certain number of people who have a desire for approbation, and they have a desire for power. Now, why people think that they're going to get power in a church, I don't know, especially since the average church size in America is about 125 people. Now, if you're going to go down to Lakewood or one of these other churches that has you know, 10, 15, 20,000 members, well, maybe that's something to, to get excited about. But to, to have a position of authority uh, in a group of 100, 200 people, well, that's, that, that's, that's pretty small potatoes. So, uh, but this is what they want to do. They want to feed their approbation lust, to feed their power lust. They're not serving the Lord. They're using the service of the Lord as a way to cloak their own selfish desires. So Paul says, therefore, watch... 
Again, this is a synonym for what we saw earlier in terms of taking heed. It's the word gregoreo, which is where we get our name Gregory. And it's a, again, it's a present imperative, meaning a continuous action, a high, uh, standard operating procedure, uh, priority that, um, uh, <clears throat> I did not cease to warn everyone night and day with tears, which means Paul was, got a little emotional about it. He was concerned about people. And, uh, and so he, this would bring him even to the point of weeping with them to stay true to the course and not to give up. And so he warns them to watch and to remember his own example, to follow that example and to do as he had done. And he is to warn them. This is another word we've looked at just in this lesson. Uh, uh, we've looked at the word to proclaim. Uh, often translated preaching, to testify. Uh, we've looked at the word to uh, pastor, and now here to warn, nutheteo. And it has the idea of warning or advising or admonishing, but it's addressed to the thinking of a person. The root of nutheteo is that first part, nous, N-O-U, from the noun nous, meaning the brain, the mind. And so it's addressing people in terms of their thinking. And so he is warning them. And then he comes in verse 32 to say, So now, brethren, I commend you to God. A word that is from the Greek word paratithemi, meaning to set before or to entrust or commit them to the charge of someone. So he's committing them to God's protection. He says, So now, brethren, I commit you to God and to the word of his grace. And here it uh, indicates the message of grace, that this is a priority of the pastoral ministry is to teach the grace of God. I commend you to God, to the word of his grace, and it's that word of grace, that message of grace, which is the referent to the relative pronoun which, which describes the message. And it's the message or the word of grace that's able to build us up. It's not hymns, it's not praise music, it's not fellowship, not that, not that fellowship and singing are, are wrong, or are, are, they can be, they can be distractions if they're done wrong, but it's the Word of God, the essence of the congregational church, of meet, congregational meeting, the meeting of the church is to communicate the Word of God, because that's what strengthens people. When things get really rough, it's the word of God that sustains us. It's not all of the, all of the other things that, that are related to Christianity. It's great to have fellowship. It's great to have close Christian friends. But they're not the ones who sustain us when we are in those dark times in our lives when things are really tough and we're dealing with major issues in life. It's the Word of God. That's what strengthens us. It builds us up. It's the word akoidemeo, which means to build or to edify, uh, to build us up spiritually so that we're strong enough to face the challenges of life. And as a result, the Word of God not only uh, builds us up, but when we apply it, then what it produces in our life is divine good, which is the basis for an inheritance. Inheritance is the idea of an eternal possession. This is related to the rewards we receive at the judgment seat of Christ. 
that we're all going to show up at the judgment seat of Christ. You can't tell now. You can't tell by looking at somebody else, and we can't tell by looking at our own life. But we're producing uh, that which has eternal value, and we're also producing what we think has eternal value, but it really doesn't. And it's classified there as described under the metaphor of wood, hay, and straw. Uh, that which is divine good and has enduring value is called gold, silver, precious stones. Now, I've heard some people try to overplay that that metaphor and the analogy there, and they try to talk about gold is one thing and silver is another thing, and, and, and I don't know where they get that other than overabundance of naval contemplation. But... Um, you know, gold, silver, and precious stones just talk about things that can't be destroyed by the purifying fire of the judgment seat of Christ, and wood, hay, and straw represent something that's destroyed by that purifying fire. The, the human good, that which we produce out of the power of our own flesh, has no enduring value. Only the, the divine good that's the result of walking by the Spirit has enduring value. And on the basis of that, we are going to receive an inheritance, uh, roles and responsibilities in the future kingdom. So when we talk about inheritance, this is a, a, a Christian life issue. So when he, when he says, give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified, sanctified there isn't talking about uh, positional sanctification. It's talking about experiential sanctification among those who are growing to spiritual uh, maturity. And then as Paul closes his message to these uh, elders, he relates again to, to his own personal example. He makes sure they understand and they know that he hasn't done this for personal gain. This apparently was a problem that uh, Paul had, that people accused him of that. The Corinthians accused him of doing it for personal gain, and, and the whole time he was in Corinth, he worked as a, as a tent maker. He didn't uh, take uh, his earning, his living from the gospel, which in 1 Corinthians 9, he argues, is perfectly legitimate for a pastor to earn his, his, his income from the teaching of God's word. He says, Peter and the other uh, apostles brought their wives along, and the churches supported them financially, but he worked on his own so as not to put a burden on the church. And so, he reminds him, he did the same thing in Ephesus. He said, I've coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. He's not motivated by material gain. He wasn't motivated by personal power or approbations. And he goes on to say in verse 34, you yourselves know that these hands have provided for my own necessities and for those who were with me. So he not only made enough of an income to take care of himself, but also to provide for the others who were uh, traveling with him. He says in verse 35, I've shown you personal example. I've shown you in every way by laboring like this that you must support the weak. So he drives home the application that it's important for the individuals in the local congregation to support those who are weak. He has done the, the same kind of thing. You must support the weak, and this is talking about those who are uh, less capable. Uh, not The word can refer to either physical weakness or spiritual weakness, and in this context it's probably spiritual weakness. This word that's translated weak is used, it's an interesting word to study, in the Gospels at about 70% of the time it refers to those who are physically ill and the rest of the time to those who are spiritually weak, like like the uh, 
the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Okay, that's talking about a spiritual weakness, not sickness. But when you get over into the epistles, the percentages flip-flop so that about 70% of the time it's talking about being spiritually weak. Uh, for this reason, many are weak and sickly. See, that's not a redundancy. He's talking about many are spiritually weak and physically sick in talking to the Corinthians because they've been uh, violating uh, the standards at the Lord's table. So he says, and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, that he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, Jesus never said that where it's recorded in the Gospels, but there were many things that were known that Jesus said and Jesus taught outside of what's recorded in the Gospels. And remember, at this time, probably only one Gospel had been written, and that was the Gospel of Matthew. But uh, Paul, especially under the um, ministry, the inspiration ministry of God, the Holy Spirit, knew what Jesus had taught. So it, it, even though you can't find a source for this in the Gospels, it, it's, it's important. Now, th- it's interesting. People get a red-letter Bible. I was having a conversation with somebody the other day, and they were talking about uh, they had had a conversation with somebody who, uh, who had gone out into the spiritual uh, uh, swamps for a while and was just coming back to... Uh, gradually, slowly coming back to to, to uh, appreciation for the truth of Christianity. And this person said, and the person I was talking to said, you know, I just didn't judge him. I just wanted to let him talk. Uh, I said, you know, he, this guy said, I realize what's wrong with the church. They, they've forgotten the red letters. But see, the Scripture says all, that's why I don't like the red-letter Bible. All Scripture is breathed out by God. That means the genealogies are red letter. That means every verse in the Old Testament is the word of God, just as much as what Jesus said. So when you have a red letter Bible, what's that, what that implies is that the words of Jesus somehow are more inspired or are, are more divine than all the other words. But scripture says all is inspired by God. So if you're going to have a red letter Bible, Every word needs to be red letter or make them all black. Uh, so Jesus said it's more blessed to give than to receive. So he's reminding them of the importance of putting others first and serving one another as we serve the Lord. And then when he had said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And then they all wept freely. It was an emotional time. They knew they probably wouldn't see Paul again. They owed their spiritual lives to him. For many of them, he's the one who had uh, led them to eternal life and to eternal salvation. And so they, they wept freely. They fell on Paul's neck and they kissed him, sorrowing most of all for the words he spoke. Because it was a dire warning. There are going to be changes some of your the people you trust now are going to become untrustworthy. Some of the leaders you trust now are going to lead you into error. They're going to be wolves who come in to destroy the congregation. And then also because he said they would see his face no more, and then they would not see him again. They didn't have Skype. They didn't have FaceTime. They didn't have email. They knew that they would not see Paul ever again, and so this was a time of, of uh, sorrow at parting. And then they accompanied him to the ship. And I'm going to stop there just a couple of minutes early tonight. The next thing I want to get into 
relates to uh, several other things that we have to go through in the next chapter, and we won't have time to get there. So we'll begin in chapter 21 uh, next time. Part of that chapter has to do with a travelogue, but then there are some other interesting little things going on in the chapter that we'll have to deal with in terms of Paul's visit to Jerusalem. Let's bow our heads and close in prayer. Father, we're thankful for this opportunity to study these things and be reminded that you have called us and our salvation for a purpose, that we are now members of your family, and as members of your royal family, we have a destiny, we have a job description, and that is to serve you. And when we serve you with our whole heart, then what we are demonstrating is that your will is good and true and perfect, and that's exactly what we're supposed to be doing. It's not a matter of personal comfort. It's not a matter of making making sure that our life is affluent or, or, or that we are we have all the creature comforts and that we can relax without pressure. In fact, there's no retirement in the Christian life. In fact, for many of us, the time of the greatest testing in our life as, as believers might come in our later years as opposed to our early years. We just don't know. But it is our mission to, to uh, reveal you to others as you work in our lives that you might uh, reveal yourself through us as we serve you. And the only way we can learn to do that is through learning the word of your grace, which is able to build us up, to strengthen us, and to provide us with an eternal inheritance. Father, we pray that you would make these things very clear to us tonight in each of our own lives, that we need to be very serious about our Christian life, our Christian walk with you, until the day that you take us to be with you. We have a mission that never goes away. And, uh, Father, we pray that you would challenge us in Christ's name. Amen.